0: to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, March 20th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska.
1: And I'm Guy Ero, ready to get Gaspar going with today's discussion of freshwater drum.
0: Okay, we've got two freshwater drum enthusiasts. They're both fishermen. They come recommended by their peers in the growing rough fish circle. Drew Geving is from Minnesota. He's the president of Native Fish for Tomorrow and co-founder of roughfish.com. And Josh Knuth is from Wisconsin. He sits on the Native Fish for Tomorrow board. And we're really excited to dig into the details about freshwater drum specifically with you two and also how they fit into this larger community of rough fish, which are really cool, kind of underappreciated group of native fish. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Okay. So first things first, we want folks listening to get a feel for what this fish looks like so we can have a picture in our minds as we learn about it. Can one or both of you describe what it's like to have one of these fish in hand? What it would feel like? How big it is? It's kind of what it looks like. Sure.
2: Yeah. It's going to be a Pretty deep-bodied fish. They're not too wide, not too thick. Really notable humped back, sloped forehead, subterminal mouth. One thing that I think is really neat about them is they have a really big caudal fin. It's like a fan-shaped and a big bow-shaped soft dorsal fin, and the pectoral fins are really long, pointed, almost half the body length of like the actual fish's body. And they hold them out, kind of like wings, when they're just sort of drifting through the shallows. So they have a really elegant method of swimming that I think is just really notable with them, and sort of a duller colors, but they can have really brilliant silvers and iridescent colors that just are really striking.
3: Those purple iridescent colors that show up in drum too for certain watersheds in in regions, It seems like I know I've been out with very novice anglers and having never seen a drum before, they were just amazed. They were like, this is the most beautiful thing looking at the cheek of a freshwater drum. That purple is something pretty special.
0: And they get pretty big, right? From what I've seen in the pictures, I haven't actually got one of these, but they can be quite sizable. It seems like
3: they can. I mean, again, it depends on the watershed, but occasionally you run into a very large drum. And like personally, I've caught thousands and thousands of drum over my life. <laughs> and in, in my area in Minnesota, in the Mississippi kind of watershed up here, they tend to run rather small. So I'd say less than average size nationally. And you see one to three pound fish and a four pounder is pretty decent for a day. So I'd push that envelope kind of to about seven or eight pounds And then one time I was out fishing on the upper St. Croix River, which is a national scenic river and has had federal protections. It's just a beautiful river that's full of a healthy muscle population, right? Mm. And you don't generally catch drum up there. It's a fantastic red horse fishery. The sturgeon are coming back. So one day I hooked a large fish and it ended up being a drum that was pushing 16 pounds. Dang. And it was just amazing. And the thing looked like It was older than me, likely. It had been around, but it was just this beautiful, healthy drum that was three times as big as any drum I'd caught in the previous 30 years of my life. So yeah, that's been my experience. I don't know, Josh. I mean, you guys have a little bigger average drum up by you.
2: They get a little bit bigger average size. I don't really do weight by pound that much, but average size about, I would say 17, 18 inches Mm -hmm. seems to be the size that we catch most. I'm talking about the Winnebago system in Wisconsin. If we're going to target larger drum, we'd switch up to crayfish tails or shrimp. And then it seems like right away, you'll start getting fish over 24 inches. And my biggest one was 30 inches. Don't know the weight on it, but probably like 23, 24 pounds. Yeah.
0: I saw a quote somewhere that during their spawning season, these fish sound like an orchestra that drowned. So uh, number one, I was wondering if you guys have heard them. And number two, we can't let you get off the hook because we had Jay Sheldon doing his impersonation of Red Drum. If one of you guys or both could make the sound for us. That would be awesome.
2: Oh, geez. It's sort of a deep rolling room, 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 room sound. Um, I've heard that in hand when you're holding them. They'll make that sound. But the locals out on the lake talk about on calm, warm June nights, when the drum are spawning, you can hear them from the dock. So a lot of times they'll actually post on like the fishing forums, like the drum are spawning, I can hear them from my dock. And I would love to hear that. I've seen them spawning. I've been out kayaking out on the lake, and you just sort of drift into the school of a thousand of them, just sort of rolling around in a big circle. Normally there's gulls and stuff searching around, probably Mm -hmm. minnows and stuff too, but... It's just an odd thing to see. I would love to hear it.
0: Yeah. How about you, do. Have you heard it?
3: I have not heard it, but I did have a conversation with a guy a couple of years ago, and he was fishing around the drum Spawn time, and he said to him and his girlfriend, they were in an aluminum canoe, mm-hmm. and they said suddenly they heard this sound around them, like Josh had so expertly uh, mimicked it, <laughs> and they couldn't figure it out. It was just coming from seemingly everywhere, and it was mm-hmm. amplified by their canoe. It was probably some spawning aggregate of drum below their boat. And the aluminum canoe was actually amplifying that sound. So someday I do want to go out in a in an empty aluminum boat just to see if I can do that.
0: I think that's so cool that some fish can make noise. You think of like crickets and it kind of brings back like memories of our place or cicadas. Up here, it's like float planes flying over in the summer, but that's <laughs> it's something people don't really think about.
1: It's also worth noting that they have very well-developed ear bones. Their otoliths are very large yeah. and their lateral line system is very well-developed to be able to account for this because it's not just the production of noise. They need to be able to receive that noise, too, and I have heard that before when I've been mm-hmm. out fishing. I've been out standing on logs, and you can even kind of feel the vibration a little bit under your feet when you're standing out mm-hmm. there on the river. I'm presuming that they were freshwater drum. I don't know what else it would have been, and it was a tributary to the Mississippi. <laughs> but... Uh, I was reading a little bit more on those ear stones. I read that they were called lucky stones in some place in the Midwest. Do you guys know anything more about that? Cause I want to go get some now that I've read a little bit about that.
3: I've heard that too. Actually up in, in my region here, the whole Great Lakes region, they find these stones in old native American encampments and they were used as kind of like jewelry and they were considered to be of somewhat value or luck as it will, even if luck was the only value and They have sort of an L shape that is a groove in them that's more pronounced in some than others. I think the larger they get, the more they get the little L-shaped marking. They're pretty small in in your typical small drum, but when they get to be larger fish, and if you do end up keeping a slightly larger one for the table, it's definitely worth digging in there and finding them and throw them in your tackle box. Maybe you'll have better (laughs) fishing. Yeah,
2: I've got a jar full of them in a cabinet here. I try to save them whenever I clean a drum. I'll take them out of there. That's really
1: cool. Back a long time ago, before our 100th episode, Katrina and I were thinking about potential fish. And at one point, I threw out freshwater drum because I thought that it encapsulated what we were trying to do on this show more than about anything else. When you think about its really wide distribution, the fact that it can be good as a sport fish, but it's also kind of under-recognized. And I got to thinking about it more, and I couldn't quite put my finger on why this fish really is a rough fish and not a more popular sport fish. I'm curious if you guys can speak to that a little bit.
3: It's a conundrum. Yeah, it really is. They're ubiquitous. I mean, they're found, I think, as far south as Guatemala and all the way up through Canada. Yeah. There's so many millions of anglers that have access to them. And it's a stigma that doesn't make much sense, to be honest. We see their close relatives in the saltwater side with redfish and with yeah. black from. I mean, everyone's heard of black and redfish as a delicacy, right? And the flesh of the fish isn't that dissimilar to their saltwater cousins. And the fact they do put up a good battle once they get over a few pounds, it, it is a conundrum that. They're not more popular. I don't know, Josh, if you have thoughts about that too. I think
2: my area, a lot of people are fishing for walleye and mm-hmm. they're catching the drum instead. It's the most common like predatory species in the lake and they tend to swallow the hook a lot. So mm-hmm. I think it becomes problematic when you get into a big school of them, um, you'll just start deep hooking these fish. And that's the only thing I can think of. I don't really know. I've been told mm-hmm. my whole life growing up, don't keep these. They taste terrible. They're horrible. All of this stuff. And it's just absolutely not true. And lately, I'm starting to see that change. People are keeping on my... It's not uncommon now for me to be out on the river and see people with a stringer full of drum, which is awesome.
0: Yeah. And Josh, you said this is one of the main food fish you keep in a kind of email exchange we had ahead of this. Is that...
2: It is. Right now, I live on the Wolf River and I'll go out there and I'll catch rock bass and drum are the main fish that I (laughs) end up catching. And I stock up my freezer with those and it's easy to catch. They're delicious. You can cook them in different ways and... Yeah, it's a simple fish. The flavor is really good. Light, white, flaky, lean meat. It's, it's always kind of funny. I can tell when people haven't actually tried it. and They talk about how they don't like it because it's oily and fatty and it's not. It is just very lean meat. Sounds awesome. So how
1: do you like to prepare it?
2: I normally just pan fry it. Okay. That's my go-to. Otherwise, grilling. Grilling works really good.
0: Are there any, in terms of like you catch one of these fish and you're going to fillet it, are there any filleting tips or preparation tips as you're getting ready to cook this fish?
2: Not really. It's pretty straightforward. It's just like a white bass or anything like that. There's no okay. bones to really worry about. Fillet is just fillet. pretty much about the same. Easy
3: fillet. Okay,
0: good. That's awesome. Yeah,
3: I found that when I fillet drum, I like to fillet off the darker meat parts and okay. also really get them on ice right away. And I mean, that's true yes. for any fish, right? Amazing. That's just typical fillet care. But especially with drum, I've found A, they the fillets tend to just come off a little easier when the water's cold and then B, yeah, you don't want them to warm up and then take them home and deal with them. Put them on ice, they last really well. Okay.
1: Do you bleed them when you catch them, if you're going to keep them?
3: Um, generally, I've just kept them alive on a stringer. and If I don't have the time, go and gut them on the river and bring them home, or else I'll just fillet them on site, generally. So I've never really bled them. I don't know, Josh, if you have.
2: Not really, not that much. Normally, it's same thing, just try to get them on ice.
0: We just had an episode recently about Friday Night Fish Fry yellow perch. Drew, have you cooked for large groups of people with this fish at all? Is this a popular kind of community fish at all in your circles?
3: Yeah, we have. And it's going to become more common now. Generally, we have gatherings where we fry up a bunch of red horse. And that's just a huge hit with that group. But last summer, my brother and I were at the NANFA convention was being hosted in Minnesota. And we were asked to provide a fish fry for the attendees in one day. So we were busy trying to catch Red Horse. And it was one of those times in early June where the Red Horse weren't cooperating as much as he'd like, but we happened to get into a whole mess of beautiful drum, larger than average size. We fried them up and fed a crowd of about 50, and everyone was just amazed. And some of them had tried drum before and said, this is great. This is better than the drum I've had previously. They, they liked it because we had a deep fryer and we just sort of cranked through them and yeah. had various dipping sauces for them, but
0: huge hit. And is the North American Native Fish Association? Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Fish is. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's a distinction. You got me. We're got being me technical yes yeah. i was fishing up in green bay one time for small mouse with one of the biologists up there and we finally started hooking into drum and he kind of looks around to see if there's anyone like he had to ask permission of me he didn't know who i was we just met and he's like is it cool if we fish for these a little bit and i take some home he's awesome. like hey, yeah. he's like the assumption is that ah oh, this is going to be a waste of time but it seems like everyone who actually knows about it is just super into it yeah and so it's a mystery he referred to them as sheep's head. Uh, I was going to ask No one sheep's head, the sparid, and also the California <laughs> sheep head, the labrid. Yep. Having a cyanide called a sheep's head was very confusing to me. And I'm curious. I mean, that was up your guys' way. Do you guys hear them called that? Are there any other names that you hear them called?
2: Uh Sheephead in our area and goats. They called them goats a lot. Is
0: that because huh. of their face and then kind of that sloping face or what's the?
2: I think it's got to be the sloping face. Yeah, it does actually kind of get sort of that roundish nose to it. But
0: Those marine sheephead, they have a really weird like set of teeth. They kind yeah, of they do. A little bit. Yeah.
3: yeah, they're a little odd. They're called sheephead around these parts for sure. And okay. we don't have to make the saltwater distinction up here. So we do hear them called drum more and more often too.
2: Yeah, I never heard that when I was a kid. Nobody ever called them drum. That was, <laughs> it was always sheephead. So it's yeah. kind of neat hearing that now. Yeah. yeah.
1: Do y'all remember your first drum or was it too young for you guys to remember? I do actually
2: remember my first drum. It was right, a little see. creek not far from my house. I used to spend a lot of time in that creek. Just would go down there with a wagon and a bucket and a net kind of thing. And I was fishing with my brother and we saw a few of them in a pool and we went back and got our poles and I caught my drum. I probably
3: was like six years old.
1: Awesome. That's efficient. You see it. You want it. You get it. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> How about you, Drew?
3: I can't recall my first drum. It was back in the day in those early river years. Honestly, was probably three or four years old. I can tell you where the spot was probably where we caught it because Mm -hmm. we would fish this one particular good multi-species spot on the Mississippi River. And I do have a picture of me holding up my first bowfin. I have a picture of it. (laughs) I was about four years old. So I'm sure I caught a drum before the bowfin. That's
2: cool. My weirdest freshwater drum story was fishing with my dad on a river and we're probably about maybe 50 yards away from each other and he's fighting a fish and then my line goes off and I'm fighting a fish. And mm. we realized that we've caught the same drum. It had taken his <laughs> line and hooked it in one corner of the mouth and then swam over it and then ate mine and oh, was hooked on the God. other side.
1: That was bizarre.
2: We had to meet, we, we had to meet in the middle. So <laughs> <laughs> no. maneuver around trees and
3: things like that. I have a very interesting story. Like, two people catching the same drum. But one of the first drum I can remember eating was out with some friends on the river and we were just kind of hanging out all day there. And the one guy was like, what are we going to do for lunch? And I'm like, I don't know. I got some snacks, right? And he's hungry. and, And he was a novice fisherman who hadn't had much exposure to these other fish, let alone eating them. But he reeled in a nice five or six pound drum. It was a clean river and we got a fire going, and he was determined that he was going to clean it, which this time meant just scaling it, gutting it, and basically using willow sticks, he created sort of a rack to put over our campfire on, and he cooked that drum hole. Mm-hmm. And there was four of us there, and we all sat down and split it and just kind of picked away at it. And those folks were just amazed at the flavor of the fish and the fact that there was no seasoning involved. It was just kind of blackened on the campfire, but it turned out just absolutely amazing. So... I'll never forget that. And it just goes to show you that give these fish a chance and you can have a good meal out of them too.
0: That's awesome. How do you guys like to fish for these? I know there's probably a lot of different ways I've never fished for them. Could you give some tips on like kind of time of year and different considerations folks could think about if they're going to go try for these fish?
2: Sure. It's normally open water. They don't really seem to be that active under the ice. So it's normally... Sp- like May around here is when we'll start catching them. Worms on bottom, you can't go wrong with that. They get them with jigs, like fishing for walleye, small jigs, crayfish mimics, things like that. And then, like I said, switching up to a shrimp, like you're fishing for catfish works really well.
3: I would comment that earlier, Josh mentioned that they do have a tendency to sometimes swallow your hooks when you're fishing with crawlers. And for that, we highly recommend the use of circle hooks. That will generally catch them in the corner of the mouth so they don't have a chance to swallow it. I have a theory that drum will sort of come up to your bait and just kind of sit there and eat it without actually telegraphing anything to your rod tip if you're bottom fishing. And once you actually do notice that bite, they have it very deeply often, and which is unfortunate because a lot of fish end up being killed that aren't intended to be. So circle hooks, maybe a size or two larger than you would expect to use for that quarry is highly recommended and uh, it works.
1: Where... In a large river system, if you're talking where it's kind of muddy or silty and you can't see what the bottom's like, are you going to want to like lay your bait to, if you're trying to target freshwater drum in particular?
2: For what I look for some sort of structure, rocks, fallen timber, something like that. Normally I'm looking for where there's mussels or where there's going to be crayfish. Those are the two things that I look for.
3: Okay. Yeah. I'd add, for me, I look for kind of current breaks. You don't generally fish for them in fast current and they like to be on the edge there where they can find food kind of drifting through
1: that makes sense what pound test are you guys typically running where it's fun enough to play them but not so light that you're really wearing the fish too out i'm normally
2: using a standard like 10 12 pounds when i'm fishing for them if i know i'm fishing for larger ones i'll go to like 15 20 but it's mainly that size for the bycatch there's other fish that'll catch that are larger
3: yeah i tend to use generally the widest gear that i can for the situation so it really depends on the conditions and how much current you're dealing with to me and that but i like to get a tussle out of the average fish so i tend to stick with lighter tackle and six pound line unless i again need to bump that up for conditions
1: i think i got my first one i i remember it because it wasn't too long ago and i'd been wanting one for a while it was there in the wapsie pinnakin river down in iowa I'm glad I'm not doing the safety tips anymore because <laughs> I was out on like a bobbin strainer. There's room for one foot. So I got my other foot on top mm. of my one foot. There's other people around, luckily. I was out there with my cousin and his family. And I'm just yelling at him to get the net because even though it could very easily lift it out of the water, I'd never had one before. And I wanted mm. to get it in and see it. And so I had him net it for me. And But, you know, it's a muddy river, and so it didn't have any of those purple colors you're talking about. It was basically like a white sort of silvery color to it, but a very pleasing fish.
3: Awesome. (laughs) Were you wearing a life jacket? No. (laughs) Well, you only (laughs) catch your (laughs) first of a species once, so I'm glad it was memorable for you. Yep. (laughs)
0: So, if these guys are considered a rough fish, are they considered a rough fish across their range? Or are they considered a sport fish in certain areas?
2: In the South, they're a sport fish. Like, okay. if you go to Louisiana, we- get crayfish in the crayfish traps, and then we'd go fish for gas for supper. And that was a pretty common thing. It just seems to be more of a Midwest thing where they're considered a rough fish okay. from my experiences.
0: So when folks catch a freshwater drum, say in the Midwest, they don't want it, they wanted a walleye, they wanted a perch, they wanted something else. What typically happens to that fish if it swallowed the hook? Do they just get kind of dumped or what's the...
2: Unfortunately, they get kind of dumped. Okay. So it's not uncommon, especially where I am to see just lots of dead ones on the shore. They just throw them up on shore. Okay. So... But again, less and less as the years go on. I'm seeing that a lot less than I did when I was growing up.
3: Okay. In my area too, a lot of the cat fishermen and sturgeon fishermen around here, gar fishermen, if they catch a drum, incidentally, that's deep hooked, they'll save it for bait too because they do make good cut bait.
1: Okay. You're mentioning you're catching them down in Louisiana. How much into brackish water can these guys tolerate? Do you know?
2: Let's see. I'm trying to think. I caught redfish while I was fishing for them. So it's got to be right in that zone.
1: Yeah. And redfish just won't come up near as far. Yeah. Gotcha. Katrina mentioned that you helped co-found Roughfish.com and are the president of Native Fish for Tomorrow. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's me.
1: Yeah. So I'm curious what kind of led you to do that. And then just also kind of what progress you've seen over the years with regard to rough fish and sport fish and that whole line.
3: Sure. It really boils down to my upbringing. I have a brother who's five years older than me. His name is Corey. And we co-founded actually roughfish.com back in 1999. But, you know, we grew up with a father who was taking us out fishing on the rivers and he didn't discriminate to what fish we were going after. I mean, sure, there were times we would go fish dry flies to trout down in the driftless. But there's also times where we would go out and just let's go soak some livers and catch catfish, go after carp or whatever's going to swim there. What can we get our best chances for some success for my little boys here who are just running around on the river, trying to have fun. And, so we visited rivers like the St. Croix and the Mississippi and the Crow and the Rum around my local area here. And my brother and I grew up just wanting to go to the river all the time. It was more mysterious. It mm-hmm. was more unknown. And the method of fishing was also very much more, I want to say, relaxed mm-hmm. and exciting at the same time because you can prop your rod and a fork stick and you can explore the shoreline around you and pick agates and look at mussel shells and, you know, mm-hmm cool sticks, whatever it is, build a mud castle while you're still waiting for a bite. And from that, it just grew. And Corey and I, we saw the sort of disdain and the treatment that these fish get often. And as we got older, it was the dawn of the internet. And so we decided we wanted to have a website that that kind of promoted them and just said, hey, look, at people think these fish are great. We do. Choosing the name roughfish.com almost ironically at the time, because we've never believed that that... Term should be used to group these fish, but it was a catchy word that people associated with this certain type of fish. So over the years, we had forums, discussion boards, articles, an entire community of people grew. You know, I actually met Josh through that because I caught a what at the time was a Minnesota state record and world record golden red horse. And I had written a blog story about it, just mentioning I was going to try to get it mounted and taxidermed. And lo and behold, Josh is an expert fish replica yeah. artist. And he contacted me and that was the way that our friendship was born, what, <laughs> six, 17 years ago, Josh? I think so. Yeah, yeah. 17. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So it, the goal of roughfish.com was really just to kind of promote them, get pictures of people with big, cool, impressive rough fish and spread the word on the internet about it.
0: Yeah. A lot of the guests we've had on this show have actually come from the rough fish Facebook group. And uh, there's just a lot of like cool native fish that are grouped in this. And I guess my question is, what are some common characteristics that kind of tie these fish together that are (laughs) in this group, if any?
3: Yeah, they're so diverse. And Josh might have a better answer, but you know, we've, we've thought.
0: And maybe it's like public perception. Like, I guess what about them kind of gets them into that category?
3: Yeah, and we've thought about this a lot with our group Native Fish for Tomorrow on how to convey what similarities they have compared to other fish in, in the environment. What does a bowfin and a fallfish have in common? You know, And one of the main things we can come up that they do have in common is that they're native to the place that they're found. And that's not exactly true for many game fish that are stocked and reintroduced around. And it's not true at all for the exotics like the, the common carp and the Asian carps, which one of the issues now that we're trying to... Um, breakdown is the fact that the term rough fish in angling regulations lumps exotic carp and our awesome native fish into the same category, which makes absolutely zero sense. So that's something we're fighting for right now in legislation.
1: How do you get roped into this life, Josh?
3: (laughs) A really similar story,
2: actually. My dad was really into nature and would take us out. And it was always, again, no discrimination. Everything that we would see, even the non native stuff, it all has value. It's all a living creature. It's all fascinating. And the drum were fish that we would catch frequently out in the lake. And I would love catching them. I would love catching anything I could get out there, anytime I could see something different. Mm-hmm. And like he talked about the mystery of the river, that you never know what you're going to get. It's different every single day, every time you go out. And it's just a complete mystery. Realizing how many species that we actually have, it's not just the six that everybody fishes for, there's so many. And you have an opportunity to just keep seeing more and more. And that's really what roped me into it.
1: Nice. You ever do any mounting of freshwater
2: drum, Josh? I do. I've done several of them. The, my biggest one that I caught was deep hooked and I kept it and made a mold of it. And I think there's six or seven mounts I've done from that mold for people.
1: Okay. So, so yeah. is it just like plaster or paris or something? Or how? what do you use to make, make the mold? Make a
2: fiberglass mold of the fish. Oh, and okay, then from fiberglass. that, I'll make fiberglass castings. And that mm-hmm. gives me the opportunity to... Just keep reproducing that fish, which means people can release the big fish that they catch, which is why I like Mm. the replicas more than anything else. Okay. So yeah. And most of the fish that I do are rough fish. I I made that my focus is just to do the stuff that most people don't normally target. And oddly enough, there's a lot of people who are now getting those mounted.
0: How are these fish doing? How are their numbers?
2: They're stable. I think freshwater drum are pretty stable. I don't know of any places that have taken population hits. The VHS outbreak in the Winnebago system in Wisconsin did drop the numbers significantly, but they're coming back.
0: And VHS stands for?
2: Viral hemorrhagic septicemia. It was quite a smelly spring. (laughs) Hmm. We lost a lot of fish.
1: And what, was it just kill them or what, what from my understanding,
2: it's normally in the spring or in colder water. And then once the water warms up to a certain point, it doesn't affect them anymore. But it's just because it's bleeding. Yeah. It's mm. just, yeah. So it's just, yeah, there were rafts of dead fish of all different types on the Winnebago that year.
1: Oh, so it's not just the drum. It's
2: No, it was pretty much everything got hit. Yeah. But yeah, the populations seem really stable pretty much everywhere, which is kind of nice because that's not often the story with these fish, especially drum that can be over 70 years old.
0: Okay. So they get really old.
2: Yeah. They get
3: really old. Dang. It'd be great to get more study on them. There's just not much known about drum and their life history. We're starting to learn so much more now about the science of mussels and how they are related to our native fish populations as hosts and the fish that prey on these mussels depend on them for food. Yeah. We've caught them with so many zebra muscles
2: that they rattle.
0: Like oh wow. You wow. That
2: you, know, you can feel the muscles in the belly. Wow. Or they'll actually regurgitate muscle shells. That's really an interesting thing.
3: That's amazing. I personally think that mussels and drum are very connected. Hmm. And it's interesting because we look at things like the zebra mussels that have spread to obviously Great Lakes and many other places, but drum are one of the few fish that actually feeds on these zebra mussels, to what degree do they have an impact on the population of these? I think it's just unknown.
1: I've been seeing lots of these native fish conservation sort of organizations popping up. You have yours, Native Fish for Tomorrow. You have the Native Fish Coalition, North American Native Fishes Association, as well as, you know, down here, we got Southeastern Fishes Council. And then you got your recreational ones, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Trout Unlimited. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's lots of stuff going on. And I'm curious what Your organization in particular does that's different than these other ones. It just crosses my mind seeing all these things and people asking for donations and your time... That there's lots of things going in parallel that it could be valuable to consolidate stuff like that. So I'm just curious what your opinion is on this.
3: We've thought about this a lot before we formed Native Fish for Tomorrow in 2022. As you mentioned, some great groups there. I belong to some of them, and I think they each have their role. The backcountry hunters and anglers to me is a lot about expanding access and making sure people know about the access they have and the opportunities in front of them. NANFA, they've been around forever fighting for our natives from darters to paddlefish. They're working with research and scientists and just learning and pushing forward this knowledge. It's just a great organization. And you mentioned the Native Fish Coalition as well. I know they're expanding into new states all the time where we see a lot of native brook trout restoration things. But then down in Georgia, you see these cool black bass restorations with some of the cool species down there. I love it. Our group, Native Fish for Tomorrow, we're a rod and gun conservation group. So we're coming at this from an angle of anglers and the fact that we need to impact change in the way that they're regulated and perceived. So it feels like our beloved species, which are these rough fish, Weren't on the top of the list of some of these other organizations from an angling perspective and the way that they're perceived by the public and the DNR regulations. So we felt it was niche in this sort of these groups that have their focus. Ours felt different than others, while still at the same time, obviously, at the end of the day, there's many things in common from clean water and protection and research and all of these things. But I think the big thing that separates us is the fact that we're number one an angling focused group and number two we're out there we're hitting the legislative sessions now and testifying for bills supporting these things and just getting our message out there i think a little more loudly than some other groups are and we're just beginning so big things coming ahead
1: very cool
0: all (laughs) right well get out there and enjoy all the fish including the freshwater drum and the rough fishes they need a lot of love thanks for listening to fish of the week my name is katrina liebeck and my co-host is Guy Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A. F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.